0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless and grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Why doesn't Matthew talk about the ascension, or why doesn't John talk about the ascension? Well, because they don't. When you get to heaven, ask him. Don't ask me. I wasn't there. Luke 24. Luke actually describes the ascension twice. He uses it to close his gospel, and then he uses it to open his uh, history, what we call the book of Acts. Both the gospel and the book of Acts are actually epistles. That he writes to a Gentile by the name of Theophilus, whom we don't know anything about. There's no shortage of legends, though, that have crept in over the years as far as who this Theophilus might have been, a lover of God, for all we know based on his name, Theos and Philos. All right, in your Harmony of the Gospels, this is episode 13, which is the final episode, Uh, Then page 4, the final episode of the final section of the life of Christ. It's called The Ascension. I put in parentheses the final ascension because I believe he had at least two more prior to this but this now being his final ascension whereby in which he stopped returning back to the earth and uh, took his seat at the Father's right hand. All the other ascensions prior he went up there and accomplished the things that he had to accomplish but he did not sit down. He did not uh, begin his Uh, session as we as we call it the session of jesus christ whereby he is seated and he is undertaking his present ministry in session and that's what we're going to study in our main point four in this outline before we begin let's take a moment for silent prayer asking god the father to bless our study to set aside distraction and to humble ourselves under the authority of his truth shall we pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, the blessing that we have to come together this morning. Father, uh, have just the slightest touch of congestion left. Work through that, Father. Do what you want to do with it. Father, uh, don't allow uh, these human limitations and weaknesses to be an impairment upon the truth of your word, Father. We have brothers and sisters this morning that have assembled together to receive instruction. They have humbled themselves under the authority of your truth. Father, uh, we are here in obedience, your word commands us to present ourselves before you workmen needing not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth so here we are father presenting ourselves before you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight teach us father and we thank you in christ's name amen all right in this we're starting basically with the luke gospel narrative the the mark material mark 16 is fine for what it is Interestingly enough, I didn't put Mark in front of that. That's a typo. Mark 16, verses 19 and 20, um, is in part of the dubious section here whereby I think the Gospel of Mark originally ended with verse 8 because uh, the rest of this is just a mess in terms of manuscript questions and variations and, and all kinds of tangles and 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 so forth. But in that problematic portion at the end of Mark 16, it does say, Uh, so then when the lord jesus had spoken to them he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of god and they went out and preached everywhere where the lord worked with them while the lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed all right and i think i pointed out last week we don't really lose much uh, by cutting these verses out it doesn't really damage our understanding of the ascension in fact if we include them uh, when the Lord had spoke to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. Okay, uh, do, we, do we gain anything? Do we gain anything in that verse that's not featured already in uh, Luke, in Acts, in uh, throughout the New Testament epistles? I don't think we gain anything. In fact, I think everything that's in this verse is given to us elsewhere, which is probably how we got this verse to begin with, how it was added in the early centuries uh, by various scribes that tried to lengthen what they felt was a short ending there in that gospel account. So point one in our outline, the, uh, Luke's gospel uh, narrative, Luke 24, verses 50 through 53. I'll just simply read these four verses. He led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. All right, so that's all we've got to deal with. Four short verses. should go by pretty quickly. Um, remember, though, that this comes right after he says, stay here, right? Stay here. You are to stay in the city. We have the admonition to stay here in verse uh, 49. Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And uh, you understand how this works. It's not a contradiction for him to say, stay in the city and then lead them out to the Mount of Olives, to lead them out even as far as Bethany. It is not a violation of the standards whereby they are staying in the city. They're within the greater precincts during the feasts of Passover and Pentecost and booths and so forth. They expanded the boundaries of the city so that you stay within the city precincts. And you have not considered to have violated that. You've not considered to have departed from the city. You're not, you're not uh, ritually unclean for going out to Bethany. You don't have to re-cleanse yourself, as it were, uh, because you crossed a boundary. You crossed the um, uh, jurisdiction of the temple. All right, so he leads them out as far as Bethany. And this is what we looked at a week ago. Jesus led the disciples to the place of the final ascension. Where did he ascend the other times? We don't know, all right? It it doesn't say where he ascended on the other occasions. We just know that he did. And um, and I think that's clear as well. If I have, let's see. We're going to get to this. I think we're going to get to this. Yes, under point three, so I'll save that for then. All right, we don't know. When he was in the garden, when Mary thought he was the gardener, uh, he said, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. All right, he had an ascension almost immediately after that. He departed to heaven. In fact, the message Mary was to give the disciples was that he was ascending to the Father. Okay, he did that before he returned that evening and uh, invited them to touch him. Okay, we're going to talk about that. Does that mean he had to go out to the Mount of Olives to do that? Probably not, we don't know. The point being, he had to depart from this location because this is the location he's returning to. The Mount of Olives is a significant location for heavenly comings and goings, and we spent most of our time looking at Ezekiel 11, looking at Zechariah 14, looking at the book of Acts, which we'll be back in again here this morning. But in Ezekiel chapter 11, during the time that uh, the temple was destroyed, Ezekiel saw the glory of God departing that temple. And the glory of God departed that temple and didn't just disappear didn't just poof, where did it go? It actually walked out of the temple to the threshold, sat there for a while, got some more doctrine, went to the east of the city, got to the gate of the city, sat there for a while, got some more doctrine, and then crossed the Kidron Valley and up onto that mountain, sat there for a little while, got some more doctrine, and then finally from the Mount of Olives then, that is the mountain that is to the east, the mountain that is in front of Jerusalem, it then ascended. And so we have the pattern there. Likewise, Zechariah 14.4, the promise that when Jesus Christ comes at his second advent, that is where he lands. That is the landing location for the, uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he touches down on the ground, it's going to split the mountain, north and south. There's going to, the, the whole mountain is going to be ripped in half, and half of it shoved to the north, half of it shoved to the uh, south. You're actually going to have two mountains at that point, a north peak and a south peak, All right, and a valley in between, their way of escape, that he provides for them there. All right. Ah, thank you. Is that better? All right. Adjusting the, whatever you call that, resolution of the projector. The final ascension was the occasion for Jesus' Jesus's final blessing of his disciples. And this is a topic, I'm not really going to unfold here as much. I think uh, we have it coming up in our study from 2 Corinthians on blessing and cursing. But parting is, uh, any any parting, like physical death, uh, old men getting ready to die, uh, wanting to pass on something to their children. Uh, We we find this throughout the scriptures. We've got a lot of examples in Genesis, examples in the Old Testament. Um, You know, Moses, when he was getting ready to die, he blessed the tribes of, of Israel. Uh, Jacob, when he was getting ready to die, he blessed his sons, the tribes of Israel, and so forth. Isaac, when he thought he was going to die, wasn't even close, but he thought he was going to die because he was blind and spiritually blind as well as physically blind, tried to bless the wrong son, tried to bless the older boy that he had a lot of uh, social life with and a lot of personal family love for, tried to bless Esau, instead uh, ended up getting tricked into blessing Jacob instead. Um, The idea of blessing, so here's Jesus now getting ready to depart and so on the final occasion when you're getting ready to go we're going to see paul doing the same thing as well when he gathers the ephesus elders together and he parts from them there's there's a reason to gather and have a final time together before you depart and part of that is to bestow a blessing and that's the occasion here he parted from them in the active voice and then was carried up into heaven in the passive voice two observations two verbs that take place here in verse 51 While he was blessing them, he parted from them, active voice, and then he was carried up into heaven, passive voice. And observations there, I think, uh, I don't know if you make a great big deal out of it, but this is the nature of how uh, he was lifted, he was carried, he was transported, that it was a passive voice, God did this to him. All right? It's not quite as violent or as rapid as uh, the snatching verb that we have with respect to uh, Harpazo or the rapture of the church and things of that nature. Um, just the idea of carried up or lifted up doesn't speak to the, the speed or the velocity of it. But it does speak to the fact that he didn't do so under his own power. All right? He didn't fly under his own power. It wasn't his own active voice um, that uh, he was passive voice carried up into heaven likewise uh, when the rich man and Lazarus die uh, the, the Lazarus is carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom he doesn't have his own locomotion his own empowerment with respect to that <clears throat> finally then the disciples return to Jerusalem and blessed God daily in the temple the impact on this when, it, when the new American standard changes the translation I think it misses the point alright I think it misses the point because it's the same eulagao. He was blessing them in verse 50. Jesus was eulagaoing them, blessing them. And then while he was eulagaoing them, he parted from them in verse 51. So the same verb in verse 50, the same verb in verse 51 is the verb to bless. And then that same verb is used in verse 53. See, they had been worshiping him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple blessing God, Eulage'oing God. Same verb. And it bugs me when uh, translators feel the need to try to change the expression there. I think it misses the impact that they are returning what they had received. That's the nature of what we do when we respond to God's grace. When we respond to God's blessing of us, we want to bless God. So stay tuned because we'll have more of that coming up as well. How do I bless God? You know, we think if, if we think that blessing means plunder or loot <laughs> or booty, right? That uh I've got a, a great big stash of plunder and boot because God's really blessed me, right? That's an inferior view of blessing. Blessing is not the impact on blessing is not the the uh the, the, the result or the stuff I have. It is the process or the activity of what God is doing, the verbal blessing more than the noun blessing. And likewise, we bless God. We're commanded to bless God. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Right? We're commanded to bless God. How do I bless God? Again, if, if we're, the idea is that, well, we're going to give him a bunch of plunder, a bunch of booty, a bunch of stuff, okay? Because I've got, I've got a bunch of stuff, and I'm going to be a prosperous American um, whatever with a lot of stuff. Okay, No, that's not a blessing. Stuff is not a blessing. It's a responsibility. Whatever he's given you, you're supposed to use for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so the more he gives, the more you're responsible before him. Anyway, so we bless him not by giving him a bunch of stuff. What can we possibly give him tangibly? Nothing. But we can bless him as a verbal activity, as a prayerful activity, as... We'll get that when we get into our study on blessing and cursing. But they did so daily, continually in the temple, praising God. And that will come about, uh, we'll see more of that when we get into the book of Acts. Not just chapter 1, but throughout the book of Acts. And how it is that they used the Jewish temple as a venue for their service. Did they need that Jewish temple anymore? You know, once the, the finished work of Christ on the cross was accomplished, why even go to the temple anymore? What's the point there? Well, I mean, they're not going there to use a, a Levitical priesthood as a mediator to try to approach the uh, God of the Old Testament. What are they doing there? They're evangelizing. They're ministering. They're serving. They've got, a, they've got a, not really a captive audience, but they've got a high concentration. It's a, you know, in the military we'd call it a high target, you know, a target-rich environment. You've got a whole lot of people in a small area that need to know the truth. And they're fairly religious, I mean, right? You know, they have an understanding of who Yahweh is and they think that uh, the temple is where they can approach him. And so in the, in the early days of the church between uh, 33 and 70 A.D., uh, you've got that opportunity. All right. Well, we'll have more on that as we move on. All right, now we've got Luke's second narrative, Acts chapter 1. Luke's second narrative, Acts chapter 1. And you remember, I took the time, and I don't mind doing so again, to notice how the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts are so identical. It's how we know for a fact it's the same author for both. Look at Luke 1 1 and then we'll go to Acts 1 1. Luke 1 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning, who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. You know, the us, us here. Who's the us here? Well, Luke and his audience, in a Gentile context, a Gentile author writing to a Gentile audience, and they, they were the things accomplished among us, that is, on earth, for the benefit of humanity. And they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses. See, Luke wasn't one of the original disciples. He didn't travel with Christ for three and a half years. All right. And it seemed fitting for me as well, verse 3, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. Luke actually had a couple of years uh, free time on his hands when Paul was arrested and kept in Caesarea. Paul was arrested for two years while he was waiting for his appeal between Agrippa and... Festus and Felix and the different trials that he had before he finally appealed to Caesar and packed off for Rome. He had two years that uh, that Paul was in jail there in Caesarea. So what's Luke doing during that whole time? Right? you know, Two years is a lot of time to just sit there outside the jail waiting for Paul to get out. So he uh, walked around. He traveled around. He met people. He investigated things. And that's what we see here. He investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. And a whole lot of uh, isagogical work that needs to go into the title most excellent. Not everybody could have such a title. What does that title indicate in the Roman culture? And Theophilus. So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Clearly he knows the Lord. Clearly he's saved. He's been taught a lot. He's he has a background for this, but now he wants more. Luke's going to give him more. So there's the introduction to Luke. All right. And it's really, sure, it's a, others have written Gospels. Many have undertaken to, co- to compile an account. The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark are two that we have. John wasn't written until later, so that's not one of the ones he's talking about. But there were more as well. Don't belong in the Bible. They're just memories of people, you know, that saw stuff, that remembered it, wanted to write it down. They wrote an account of what they saw. All right. Now we get to Acts chapter one, and we have Theophilus part two, because he says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So we have the same, it's, it's a very abbreviated introduction, to just saying, all right, I've written you one, now I'm, here comes my second. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So basically he introduces his second epistle. This is the second epistle of Luke to Theophilus. And he basically says, all right, my first epistle, I gave you everything right up until the ascension. I gave you everything Jesus did from the beginning to his ascension. And here's where I'm going to pick it up now in letter number two. From the Ascension On. And so I think I was joking last time and I said, you know, we really ought to rename Luke and Acts. And What's the difference between Luke and Acts and 1st and 2nd Corinthians or 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, right? If, if you got the Epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians or the 2nd Epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, what do we call those books? 1st Corinthians, 2nd Corinthians? 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, right? We should have 1 Theophilus, 2 Theophilus. If we're going to be fair, right? What what do we call the book of Philemon? Philemon, that's right. The epistle of Paul to Philemon. What do we call 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy? Yeah. So let's go ahead and rename these 1 Theophilus, 2 Theophilus. All right. I won't single handedly overturn 2,000 years of church tradition. I guess I'll just live with the hypocrisy. All right. Now, again, the day he was taken up to heaven, taken up, passive voice, total agreement with what he wrote in Luke 24. He was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. What was the 40-day ministry about? We're just giving a summary right there. This is what he did for 40 days. Ten days before Pentecost is when he ascended. Obviously, Penta is 50. The day of Pentecost is 50 days after the um, resurrection. Or technically 50 days after Passover. All right. So then gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Remember that? That was in Luke 24, verse 49. He said, stay here in the city. You'll be clothed with power from on high. And so what he does here in this first chapter, in the first paragraph of the first chapter, he kind of restates how he ended chapter 24 of his gospel. And really what we have here is a second narrative. The great cognition from Luke is restated in Acts. The content of what we study in that chapter we ought to place in parallel to this chapter. We ought to be able to use this to get more detail from that. Remember, the great cognition from Luke is restated in Acts. So we can put these side by side. Luke 24, 44-49. Put it side by side with Acts 1, verses 6-8. through 8. <clears throat> All right. So gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now that's the background. That's the background question. I think that unlocks so much more when we understand what he's answering there in in, uh, Luke 24. When he talks about this uh, repentance must be preached. When he says repentance must be preached. That is connected to the coming of the kingdom. It has nothing to do with the Great Commission. It has nothing to do with telling an unbeliever how we can receive eternal life. All right. That's so why we separate the Great Commission from the Great Cognition. Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. It is not for you. What does that mean? Yeah. But beyond Peter and those guys, think of it as with respect to the church age. The church age is not a part of the overall scheme of eschatology that the Old Testament begins and that the book of Revelation is going to culminate. The times and the epics, that's that's centered on Israel. That's centered on the Gentile nations. That's centered on First Advent, Second Advent, all these things. The church is not a part of any of that. We're going to be raptured and brought out and then the Father will resume His plan and program for the uh, times and the epics and so forth. We're not a part of that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Again, the great cognition centered on witnesses. Centered on witnesses. And it's only bad theology or bad confusion that blends them. Keep them separate. Keep them separate. You will be my witnesses. All right? And we understand that. You will be my witnesses. It it's just breaks my heart that when people think witnesses, they go running right back to the great commission again. Okay? Great Commission said nothing about witnesses. Great Commission said make disciples. Make disciples. Teaching them and baptizing them. Nothing in there about you will be my witnesses. There's a difference. The great cognition was centered on witnesses and preaching repentance and being a witness of the resurrection of of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus Christ. You'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even in the remotest parts of the earth. And so then after he had said these things, we have more parallel. The final ascension from Luke is restated in Acts. Again, we have parallel. Luke 24, 50-53 is restated in Acts. Acts 1, verses 9-11. through 11. A little bit more detail. A little bit more detail. You would think, okay, well, if he's going to write it down a second time, maybe he'll add some more to it. And that's what he does here. Because in Luke 24, we didn't read anything about angels. Didn't read anything about um, these other details here. About the cloud. The cloud wasn't mentioned. It just said he ascended. And then they went back into, they worshipped, and went back into Jerusalem. So after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. You know, how high does something lift before you can't see it anymore? Well, especially if it goes into a cloud, then you can't see it at all. And that's uh, what we see here. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, well, maybe... Maybe we'll see him on the other side of that cloud. Maybe he'll come back into sight again. Maybe if we keep looking, maybe if we keep watching, we'll see you know he gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So they're still standing there like turkeys in the rain. And um, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them and said, "Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? What you looking at? Okay, what you looking at? All right. Reminds me of my favorite joke from second grade. I'll uh, I'll say that that's." Not for here. Maybe we'll do this on a... It's really a skit more than a joke. Well, We'll save that for some kind of a skit occasion. All right. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you to heaven, will come just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. All right. Just the same way. There's a whole lot that we can pack into that sentence or unpack from that sentence. Just the same way. What does that mean? Well, how about bodily? Okay. He ascended bodily. When he returns, he's gonna return bodily. Okay, we're not gonna allegorize, we're not gonna we're not gonna bastardize the text and say, Oh, well, he returned now. He's in the church, Jesus is here, the vicar of Christ is here, you know, and Jesus is here, Second Advent is here, we're in the millennium, you know, all this garbage from Roman theology. All right? No. He will return just as you saw him leave. You saw him leave bodily physically he's not going to come back mystically he's going to come back bodily he's going to come back physically and when he comes back bodily and physically where's he going to come back to Mount of Olives that's right and just as he ascended he's going to descend all right physically bodily and just as he came out of Jerusalem he's going to be marching right back into Jerusalem all right different things so why do you stand looking into the sky? So then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. That's very important because, again, you've got to stay within the precincts of the boundaries so that you don't violate Sabbath, so that you don't cross into unclean ground, so you don't need or require to be re-cleansed again uh, in participation of um, temple services or participation of feast activities. All right, now, again, we have more detail here, point C. He was lifted up, passive voice, same language we had in Luke. Passive voice, he was lifted up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. That cloud is remarkable, too, because he promised the cloud. He said, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Oh, that angered them. At his very trial, he spoke of that. Clouds are spoken of his as chariots, and different aspects there. Anyway, a cloud received him out of their sight. Two angels appear and identify the ascension with a second coming. Point D. Two angels appear and identify the ascension or that they, uh, yeah, identify is a good word. Or relate, connect. The ascension with the second coming. Okay. The ascension is important to study not only for its own sake but also in its connection with the second advent. To recognize that the place of his departure is the place of his return. To recognize the prophecies like Zechariah where he does land on the Mount of Olives. That's where the warfare will take place. One of the many engagements within the overall campaign of Armageddon will be the Olivet engagement. So here's our, here's our two main passages: Luke 24, Acts chapter 1. I discount Mark 16. Thirdly, now, there are other passages that we want to relate to the ascension as well. Other passages relating to the ascension. Okay? And I think this is significant. This is a, an aspect. Sometimes when we contrast Christianity with other religions, we can do so, of course, with the resurrection uh, and so forth. Sure, there's only one empty grave, right? Many religions in this world, many founders, Buddha and Muhammad and all these guys, but uh, they're still in their grave. Okay? There's only one empty grave. We talk about that. There's only one resurrection in, in that sense. But beyond that, there's only one ascension when it comes to the Father receiving the victorious, resurrected Christ to His right hand. And that becomes a significant feature for our apologetic ministry. First of all, we start with John chapter 6. Jesus referenced the ascension when he challenged unbelieving Jews. John chapter 6 and verse 62. Jesus referenced the ascension when he challenged unbelieving Jews. Let's turn back now to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 62, because he's dealing with a bunch of unbelievers. Religious types. Jesus referenced the ascension when he challenged unbelieving Jews. And if we see the scope of what he's really dealing with here, I think it, it ought to tweak us a little bit. We ought to have that perspective. We might even be able to replicate this or imitate this. John six sixty two, in different <laughs> different conversations with different folks... Um, a lot of you know the, a lot of unbelievers got this idea that Jesus was just all kind of lovey-dovey and quiet and, and all just kind of passive, and they really got this effeminate. You know, I mean, even a lot of the artwork kind of shows him in a kind of a effeminate thing. Bugs me to death. All right, because he was ferocious on a number of occasions and uh, spoke with authority. He had a, a dynamic presentation that, that his hearers struggled with sometimes. In fact, sometimes he said things they didn't want to hear. And then he's you know making whips of cords, he's flipping over tables and different things there. I mean, imagine what a body without sin would be like. Just a physical body without sin. A hard-working carpenter type without sin. Alright, now in John chapter 6, we have growing hostility throughout. And in, as you work your way through Sure, he feeds the five thousand, and then and then they want him to do it again, and then they keep begging him, "We want more food, we want more food." You know, if you just give somebody something, what's he going to want more? All right, and um, it's interesting. He says, "You're following me not because um, of the miracle; you saw the sign." I'm trying to find a short way of re- reviewing this, setting the context without. Reading the entire chapter. And maybe there's just no way to do it. So do it yourself. Read through the chapter later on. And just you'll notice as you work your way through, the the, the reaction of the crowd gets more and more and more hostile with each passing message. All right. And so we notice that they, they start they're getting more demanding, they get more insistent, uh, they're they're less uh diplomatic in their requests. And um then by the time you get to verse 41, they're actually now grumbling. And then uh, they're like, who does he think he is kind of a thing? And then he answers and says, stop grumbling among yourselves. And then they start to argue with one another. You just notice a progression through this chapter. Verse 52, now they're arguing, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right? Dismissive of what he had to say. And so, uh, interesting, he doesn't respond by backing off, does he? He doesn't say, oh, that that flesh to eat, you, you struggled with that flesh to eat message? Okay, let me add a blood to drink message to that flesh to eat message. See how you handle that. And so he says, I say to you unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Okay? And I find that remarkable. If you think that's a tough message? See, and that whole attitude is what goes into verse 62 now. So in verse 60 uh, many of his disciples when they heard this said this is a difficult statement who can listen to this now forget his enemies of course you know we know what, what what's motivating them. but now his disciples saying yeah this is kind of hard to swallow what is all this and jesus conscious that his disciples grumbled at this said to them does this cause you to stumble what if what if what then if you see the son of man ascending to where he was before. Now to me, there's a lot we can grasp right here. He uses the ascension as a dividing line. He doesn't talk about the cross. He's talking about the ascension. And he said, there's going to be a day coming where I'm going to be taken from you. I'm going to be seated at the Father's right hand. And then, if you can't handle this, <laughs> what are you going to do after that? What are you going to do with, I mean, it's one thing to have a, a uh, to regard Christ according to the flesh. It's one thing to, to walk with me and eat with me and talk to me and listen to me here with you. What are you going to do when I'm seated at the right hand of God the Father, as the advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous? You see how he's contrasting that? He says, this is nothing compared to that. You think this is tough to swallow? Just wait till I'm seated at the Father's right hand. There is a, a reality that will happen with Jesus Christ ascending to where he was before. Goes on to talk about God the Holy Spirit here where he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And we had an admonition in... Um, corinthians where was that if i can find that real quick where we where we are to no longer regard anyone according to the flesh and even though we regarded christ according to the flesh we regard him this way no longer remember that and um the uh second corinthians 5 2 Corinthians 5. One side trip for this morning. There is something we've got to identify with the ascension and the session is that Jesus Christ is now at the Father's right hand, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 16. He said, "You understand Christ died and rose again he died for all so that they who live may no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf so therefore from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh never again we're not looking at anyone according to the flesh we're not looking at anyone in earthly terms in in an earthly physical context even though we have known Christ according to the flesh see that's key we have in the past known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know Him this way no longer. Because He's no longer walking in a first Advent incarnation. He's no longer walking among us in the humility of the kenosis, in the, in the monopresent reality of His first Advent incarnation. He says we know Him in this way no longer. Something's different now that He's ascended to the Father and He's seated at the Father's right hand. We know him this way no longer. No longer. Now that he has ascended and has taken his seat, something's new here. Okay? And that is just as gripping as it is in John 6, where it says, does this cause you to stumble? What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Something different now. A new dynamic. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. There's a new creation now in Christ being baptized in union with Christ where Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. Where we are seated at the Father's right hand. The old things pass away. Behold new things have come. That's how we need to start looking at folks. Don't regard anybody according to the flesh. Regard them as a new creature in Christ seated at the Father's right hand. Stop regarding someone according to the flesh. Your pastor or your your brothers and sisters in Christ, one another in the local church. Quit looking at them in the flesh. Look at them as a new creature in Christ, baptized in union with Christ, a member of the body, same as you are, a member of the body. Let's regard one another with a heavenly perspective, with an eternal perspective, with a recognition that we operate with a by-present reality, serving here on the earth but laying up treasures in heaven. And you'll notice these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is what we have. Everything we do here on earth as ambassadors is, uh, is from God, working through us. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. That may be the, the most powerful verse. Look at that. God was in Christ. You know, first advent, what do you think? Was Jesus just down here by himself? Walking around Galilee, doing stuff, miracles, teaching. God was in Christ. The Father was in Christ. See, he said, my teaching is not mine. I have to teach what he tells me. God was in Christ. The Father was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Who's at work in you? Right now, to willing to do of his good pleasure. God's at work in you to do in the will of his good pleasure. You know why? Because he was in Christ. Christ is the prototype, the pattern, the example for our church age. And so he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. Same thing. God was in Christ reconciling the world. What's God doing now? He is in us reconciling the world, appealing through us. We're simply the conduit. We're the channel. We're the straw, right? The conduit. Through through us now, God makes that appeal to be reconciled to God. Okay, well, we have this significance, and Jesus referenced this, and he does so as he's challenging unbelieving Jews. Should we be challenging in in our interaction with unbelievers? At what point, then, are we are we appropriate to be challenging so far as we imitate Christ so far as we speak the truth in love is it, is it a love message to excuse sin? no you know um, they, when they want to grumble about this unrighteous world they're living in you think it's unrighteous now <laughs> all right because uh, you're presently on track for the great white throne and the lake of fire for all eternity. All right. Second passage where Jesus uh, mentioned the ascension. Luke chapter nine. You know, Jesus didn't fix his eyes on the crucifixion. He fixed his eyes on the ascension. Luke nine fifty one. Jesus did not fix his eyes on the crucifixion. He fixed his eyes on the ascension. Realizing, of course, that the crucifixion would precede it. That's a given. Luke chapter 9. He's wrapping up his Galilean ministry. He's getting ready now to, we studied this at the time and observed it for the hinge that it is, this hinge event. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the place of his passion. Jerusalem's the place of his suffering. See, he kept saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Every time they tried to lay hold on him, every time they tried to kill him, tried to shove him off a cliff, tried to whatever, tried to stone him. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Every time we taught that, at least I probably said it a hundred times. I don't know how many times I said it. My time has not yet come. I kind of had the cross in view. I think I was wrong. What did he have in view? He had the ascension in view. My time had not yet come. My time for what? To return to the Father, to be seated at his right hand in victory. In order to be seated at his right hand in victory, what did he need to do? Go to the cross and die and rise again. And so when the days were approaching for his ascension he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He was not going to ascend to his father without accomplishing everything his father had for him to do. And so the ascension date is approaching. Have to go to the cross. So he sent messengers on ahead of him and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. You know do we have our eyes fixed on Jesus? What did he have his eyes on fixed on? And I find it interesting. Here he is focused on the ascension, getting ready to have his greatest volitional task, his greatest suffering and his knucklehead disciples get their feelings hurt because the uh, Samaritans won't sell him bread. They go into the Samaritan village to make arrangements and they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. You know, Remember the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Theoretically if they were going north instead of south they'd have given them room for the night. Oh, you're headed to Jerusalem? Oh, forget that. Get out, of, get out of town. You're not welcome here. And so the disciples, James and John saw this. They said, Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? All right. You know, well, he turned to rebuke them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you're of. And you, you wonder, He's got his eyes fixed on the ascension. What are their eyes fixed on? Not the same thing he was fixed on. Hebrews 12 too. Who for the joy set before him. We know what his eyes were fixed on. It was the ascension. It wasn't the cross. That's how he endured the cross. How are we going to endure our struggles? Well, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. You got a struggle. You got an encumbrance. You got something that You're wrestling with? Well, fix your eyes on Jesus. It says in verse 1: let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. You getting tripped up these days? Quit fixing your eyes on the tripping up. Okay? Quit fixing your eyes on the encumbrance, on the obstacles, on the sin. All right? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. You know, the. The order is laying aside. The order is running with endurance. The explanation of how you do this is given with the fixing our eyes on Jesus. Say, well, I don't know how to cast it aside. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I don't know how to run with endurance. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You get the how to right there. Say, well, I just don't think I can. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You know, you're yoked together with Him if you fix your eyes on Jesus. He says, take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. My my load is easy. My burden is light, right? You know, so guess what? (laughs) You got two oxen side by side, yoked together. You're yoked together with Jesus Christ. What do you think he's doing? You want to run with endurance? That's right. (laughs) Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. You know, he's the author of it, the source of it, the origin of it. If you need more, he'll give you more. But he'll also perfect it. Does it need to be strengthened? He'll strengthen it. That comes through testing. It comes through endurance. Who for the joy set before him. That's the big key right there. Who for the joy set before him. It wasn't for the cross set before him. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Because he ran with endurance. He finished his course. That's what we're commanded to do. He didn't fix his eyes on the crucifixion, he fixed his eyes on the ascension. You and I, yeah, we go through struggles, we go through stuff, testing. We're going to fix in on the testing? Are we looking forward to hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Fixing our eyes on the rapture or physical death. Whatever the, the end of our course is. There is a finish line. And the finish line is departure from planet Earth. And uh, between now and then? (laughs) Between now and then, okay? We're going to give up? We're going to stop? We're going to dwell on our failures? Hmm, Well, you know, it's discouraging. Yeah, okay, I get that. But the, the encouragement provides for that. We don't lose heart. We keep moving on. I know it's easier said than done. I'm not gonna, you know, hit you with rainbows and skittles and say it's all easy. But when you when you fix your eyes on Jesus, the provision is there. When you obey his procedures, the results are in his hands. The attitude will be shaped accordingly. That is the promise. Hmm. Another passage where he talks about the ascension is when Mary Magdalene's clinging to him. John chapter 20. Jesus' admonishment to Mary Magdalene indicates an initial ascension different than his final ascension. John chapter 20 verse 17. We talked about this when we taught the uh, resurrection event. John chapter 20. But it's worth looking at again. Jesus' admonishment to Mary Magdalene indicates an an initial ascension different than his final ascension. To me, this is one of our huge clues that he had more than one ascension. I think he had at least three, maybe four. Because we know that he had to lead captivity captive. When did he do that? We know that he had to cleanse the heavenly temple. When did he do that? We know that he had to appear before the Father. When did he do that? And when he did do that, He then received the all authority in heaven and on earth that he talked about in the Great Commission passage. All right. So, John chapter 20, this is Easter Sunday, April 5th, 33 AD. They didn't call it Easter back then. All right. In fact, it didn't have any special name back then. It was simply the third day after after Passover. Passover was followed by seven days of uh, unleavened bread, but here's day three after Passover. And um Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping in verse eleven, and uh, so as she wept she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head of the feet, one of the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying, in other words, where the head had been and where the feet had been. There's no head and feet there, because the body's gone. Jesus is gone. And they said to her, Woman not insulting, okay, it was a vocative of address. Jesus called his mother woman and it's not it's kind of troublesome today. If I I called you woman then that would be kind of insulting but not so back then. Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there did not know it was Jesus. So Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So he expands on those angels' questions. And then supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir. I don't know why she thought he was the gardener. Isn't that weird? I mean, what was he wearing? What, what did gardeners wear back then? I, anyway, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. One final word. Mary. And And I don't know if it was the way he said it or the voice he used or the you know, whatever. You know, my sister's name is Mary and I, I probably can call her that in different ways, right? And then she'll know it's me just based on the way I, you know, I do that. And then she calls me nerd or she calls me dork or she's got a bunch of goofy names for me. Um, But the way that, you know, because I, I, I tease her. I I ask her how her garden's growing, you know, because she's obviously Mary Mary quite contrary And she tells me that her garden died. then I ask her, what about her little lamb? How's her little lamb doing? She tells me that it ran away. But as soon as he says, Mary, immediately she knows who he is. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. This is... This is what we discussed. Stop clinging to me. For, by way of explanation, I have not yet ascended to the Father. So there's a problem. And we don't understand it and explain it, but he just he's telling her, stop clinging to me. That he has an ascension he has to undergo. And that until that ascension is accomplished, he would prefer, or it's, it's not appropriate, or, or there's a problem with this. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Stop clinging to me. And yet, when he's in the upper room, he's, he invites them. Hey, touch me, see me. Poke your finger in here. I got a hole in my side. I got holes in my hands. Okay, and that's only just a few hours later. That's later this evening, on that Sunday night. Okay, the night of his resurrection. Just a few short hours later, he's going to invite them to touch him and see. Okay, so why is it hands off in the morning and touchy whatever, right? Touchy-feely, touch touch me, feel right here. What happened between the morning and the evening? Well, look what else he says here. He says, but go to my brethren. Go to my brethren and say to them, and it's a message for his brethren, and we could be disciples, could be his literal brethren, and say to them, I ascend to my, I think it's better that we take this as his brethren. Maybe, you know, James and Jude and Silas and Joseph. Something got their attention and took them to the upper room. He actually appeared to them and they get saved. Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father. Interestingly enough, of course, Those brothers had different earthly fathers than him. I go to my father and your father and my God and your God. That's the message. And that's huge because it's different than what the other ladies were told. The other ladies were told, Go tell my disciples I'll meet them in Galilee. Here we have a message about I ascend to my father. So Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her, that he was ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. He's going to have an ascension. And so he does ascend and then he returns. And then um, he showed them his hands and his side and, and, uh, and these things, in the parallel account in Luke, he invites them to put your finger in here, touch me, see that a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. So I believe that there were multiple ascensions, and we taught them. I won't go back and review that, but if you have your notes from the resurrection episode, we talked about the ascension that was necessary to lead captivity captive. He had to transfer paradise from Sheol, in other words, Abraham's bosom that used to be in Sheol across the great chasm from Torments, that whole compartment got relocated to the third heaven. Because by the time Paul was caught up to the third heaven, he was caught up to paradise. Paradise is now in the third heaven. Paradise used to be in Sheol. Well, when did he do that? All right. Oh, my goodness, it's 11 o'clock. Really? Let's close with 1 Timothy 3.16. The common confession mystery of godliness. I think this was an early hymn. I think this was one of the earliest psalms the church ever composed. Paul composed it here in Scripture in 1 Timothy 3. And it may have even been in verbal use prior to it becoming in the canon. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Believing on, believed on in the world. Taken up in glory. Alright. So uh, the common confession. What, what's the climax? What is the final verse? The final stanza? The ascension of Jesus Christ. Taken up in glory. Okay. Dead, raised, taken up. What's going to happen with us? Raised, taken up. We we're already raised positionally in the newness of life. Okay well we'll pick up on this because it's not just the ascension the ascension of Jesus Christ was followed by the present session of Jesus Christ and I've got a bunch of points to study there. A through I. There's a lot we've got to deal with with the ascension of Jesus Christ. What's he doing in heaven? Is he just kind of kicked back, retired, got his feet propped up? What's he doing? He's working. He's the head of the church. That's right. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for the truth of your word. Father, uh, as our Savior was ascended and received and seated at your right hand, Father, um, what, a, what a great pattern. Um, he, at the time of his ascension approached, so he fixed his eyes on the joy set before him and he went to Jerusalem to die on the cross. I pray, Father, that we too might be fixed on the heavenly things above and we might, uh, for the joy set before us, endure any, any shame any difficulty any struggle knowing father that um, when the day comes for us to enter that we're going to hear well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master I thank you father in Christ Jesus name amen